Scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Well, if you've been tracking with us, you will know that King Ahaz, who we, we heard about earlier, was a little bit like a bad sub. Israel had all bad subs. Judah had some good subs, some bad subs. Ahab was a pretty bad sub. And we saw that his heart was filled with fear. He was marked by fear. It says that his heart shook like a, a leaf before the coming invasions. And uh, he also was full of faithlessness. So Isaiah came and gave him a, a great opportunity to get a sign from God. And he said, no, 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 I'm not going to test God. And his life is kind of sum, summed up by this. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So here we have a bad sub. And uh, Isaiah, Ahaz kind of shows us just how weak the line of David had become. The line of David had been a, a majestic tree, a mighty tree. But far from those glory days, Ahaz showed that the Davidic line was, had become weak. In fact, the picture here in our passage today is that the Davidic line, this kingship, is basically a stump. And you could say that Assyria and Babylon are in the process of cutting it down. Or maybe Judah itself has been chopping it down. In just eight short reigns, the Davidic line is going to be over. There will be no king from David's line on the throne. And, uh, and this, is, this, is, uh, you know, this is the backdrop that we are facing here. So Israel and Judah, what did they need? Well, they needed a not bad sub, right? Just like the child needed a good teacher, they needed a good king. And we're pretty hard on guys like Ahaz, but honestly, I look at the, what characterizes his life, namely fear, okay, on one side, immobilized by fear, and then swinging over to faithlessness or self-reliance. And I just find myself going back and forth. Either, either I'm fearful or else I'm self-reliant, or we could say fearful or afraid. So the question is, is there an antidote to this kind of thing? Well, I would say that the antidote to fear and faithlessness is a fresh vision of the, of the Messiah, and that's what we're gonna get today because we need to have like constant reminders of who this king is that we are worshiping. And so let's turn to this passage in verse one of chapter 11 and look at this Messiah's identity. So he's been filling out a picture of this Messiah and now he gives us a new metaphor. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So here is our picture, a shoot coming out of a larger stump. 
Now, I'm going to show you a, a picture of, of one of my three Bradford pears. Okay, this was taken just a, just a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, some builder in the 1990s thought that this was a really great idea to put these things all over houses that were built in the 90s. So if you're one of those contractors, maybe you can come fill me in as to why. This seemed like a good idea at the time, but, I mean, I, I hate these guys. I mean, they, they, are, they are fragile. They split. Uh, they, they drop fruit that attract yellow jackets. The leaves are hard to rake. One thing is they're beautiful. They've got beautiful blossoms, but, I mean, they, they actually, even their blossoms stink. In fact, my wife and I used to jog past a whole row of them, and we called them spit trees because we thought they smelled like dry mouth. You needed that picture, didn't you? Um, you know, so anyway, I derived some satisfaction for cutting this tree down. But as you noticed on that picture, there is this shoot, this little sucker, and I have to keep whacking those things back um, every year. So this is the picture that we have. I'm sure the majestic line of David was much greater than my Bradford pair, but uh, what do we have here? Well, we've got something that is, life is kind of tentative, yet it's tenacious, it's a little bit fragile, it's also unexpected. I mean, it's almost like one week passes and boom, there it is. And then if you leave it there long enough, it, it shows that there are signs of life. I use that log to chop firewood and kindling. And yet every year, more of these shoots come out. And so this picture of the Messiah as a branch, as a shoot, uh, what does this tell us? Because pictures are helpful. This picture underscores a few things about his identity. Uh, it tells us, first of all, that he is human. So if you notice in your verse, it says that he comes from the stump of Jesse. So the reference to Jesse is a reference to David's family. This is yet another time that the Bible insists that we are not talking about fictional characters. We're talking about real people with ancestors. And that's why two of the Gospels actually lead off with genealogies. Because the Bible wants us to know that this Messiah is not an alien. He's not an angel. He's not a meteor that just crashes into human history. He is a man, and we can actually trace that. His humanity is important because it allows us to identify with him and know that he identified with us, with our frailties, with our weaknesses. And so he knows the human condition. But he wasn't just human, he was also humble. We just celebrated Christmas. And if you're familiar with the Christmas story, all the circumstances that surrounded his birth were not anything like the pomp and circumstance that we would expect of a king, were they? It was very, very humble surroundings. Isaiah's linking the Messiah to Jesse, I think, also kind of emphasizes some of this humility. One thing it does here is that it, it puts it back. So if he had said that he was the son of David, which he was, and Christ claims that, it would kind of emphasize his kingship. But here, by saying that he was a root from Jesse, it's emphasizing, it's kind of like picking him up and putting him all the way back where David began, in Bethlehem, in the fields, from a pre-royal family, and it's emphasizing his humility. But something else that it does here, and this is really beautiful, David, King David was a man after God's own heart, yet he had some massive failures in his life. By taking the Messiah here and saying he's from the root of Jesse, he kind of leapfrogs over David, even though he's part of that line, and he says, you are coming from Jesse, and it's almost like they're saying, here is a new David. 
He has his humanity, he has his humility, he has his kingship, yet he does not have the failings of his father, David. Using more plant language, Isaiah in, in um, chapter 53 says that he is like a young plant and like a root. And then it says he has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So we know from this text that even his appearance was unassuming. It wasn't like one of the early kings of Israel, King Saul, where he stood head and shoulder above all other people, and you're like, whoa, that's a king. What did Jesus look like? He looked like a man, just a man. And I think God is so kind to give us a Messiah that we can approach, that he is human and humble. He was the kind of Messiah that one day children would want, run to. But this picture not only emphasizes his humanity and his humility, it also emphasizes God's faithfulness. So we have to understand that the picture here is intentional because he springs out of a place that you wouldn't expect at a time you would not expect from a place that to all appearances the life was gone. When Jesus finally came, there had been no king on the throne of David for hundreds of years. Yet God had given David a promise, and that promise was found in 2 Samuel 7, and your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So even though the, the Davidic line seems like it had been cut off, all of a sudden from that seemingly dead majestic stump comes this shoot. So just as the kids in the illustration at the opening need a teacher that has some kind of identification as a teacher, like they want to be known as a teacher, they're certified, they have some sort of pedigree, uh, the Bible helps us with this picture. So if we are looking to know, like, who is this Savior that is promised, we can look at his identity, and we know he is an Israelite, we know that he is from the tribe of Judah, we know that he is from the family of Jesse, we know that he is going to spring up from a kingly line that looks like it is defunct. And so we have his identity. And so if you are looking into the Christian faith or you are exploring the Christian faith, it is important to note these are the things that God says, look for these things. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, you say, wow, that all checks out. Now, honestly, his identity is not all that comforting if, like the second teacher in the opening illustration, uh, he doesn't have the capacity, the capacity to rule. Now, indeed, this king is going to have to rule extremely well. We're not going to be able to look at all these verses, but if you continue to read in chapter 11, you're going to see in verse 6 where even nature shows a peace and a harmony that has never been experienced on this earth before. So it has the picture of wolves lying with lambs. So you have predators lying with, with like, keeping company with the prey. So even nature is showing peace. In verse 10, it says that this, this root is going to be a signal for the nations. And so if you've been tracking with this sermon series, we heard about early, I think in chapter 2, the mount, where the Messiah is going to rule from that mount and the nations are going to stream toward that mountain to hear of his teaching. And so there's going to be peace among nature, there's going to be peace among nations, and in verse 16, it says that God's people who had been scattered all over the place are going to miraculously be gathered. And so he is going to have to rule well. I mean, how do you go about setting up a kingdom that exhibits those characteristics? Well, here's the answer in verse 2. He can do it 
because the Spirit of God rests upon him. I want you to look at that verse and note the repetition. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Then it says the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Throughout Scripture, the presence of the Spirit has denote empowering. Now, in the Old Testament, the first parts of our Bible, the, old, the, the Spirit would come for, for specific tasks. So, for instance, uh, Gideon, it came for his battle. Joshua, it came for his leadership. Uh, Joseph, it came so he could interpret dreams. The prophet Ezekiel, over and over, it says the Spirit came upon him, and he prophesied, and he preached. Sometimes the Spirit even came for craftsmanship, like with metalwork, when God wanted something just so for his temple. 1 Samuel 11 says that King David had the Spirit in an unusual way. It says that it rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, the scary thing about this is that as it came on somebody for a task, it could also be withdrawn as it was from King Saul. But David, it said, had the Spirit resting upon him. If you notice in verse 2, this is going to be the characteristic of the Messiah. The Spirit is going to rest upon him. And what that's telling us is that he is going to be empowered. He is going to be capable. He is going to be successful. He's going to be gifted. He is going to accomplish everything that he sets out to do. And that's why when we get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that three of those books note that the Holy Spirit came and rested upon Jesus after his baptism. And then it says immediately he was driven into the wilderness for the first test of his ministry. You see, Jesus was a man that was, had the Spirit driving him, and he was going to accomplish his mission. We're going to see here that the empowering shows up in three different pairs. So we see the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of God. So these are pairs that are going to enable him to do what he is supposed to do. The first, wisdom and understanding, has to do with his intellectual gifting. And so wisdom is not just collecting a whole bunch of knowledge. You know, you're not like the trivia king. It means that you have access to facts, but then you can actually sort things out and even know what decisions need to be made. He's going to be able to do that. And then his understanding shows that whatever his appraisal of this situation is good. The second set, counsel and might, has to do with his ability to administrate. And so counsel has to do with making plans. Might has to do with the ability to carry them out. In fact, some think that this counsel may actually have to do with planning military campaigns because he is going to have enemies rise against him and he's going to have to administrate this kingdom. And uh, if you notice, like a lot of times in movies, uh, normally if you've got a right hand to a king or a sultan or something, that right hand is either going to be like a bore, you know, just the stuffiest, most unpleasant person in the world, or else they're going to be treacherous. You know, think like Jafar or Yzma, like this happens in Disney things all the time. Well, well this, this king is not going to have that problem because the council is within himself. He can keep counsel with himself because he has counsel and then the ability to make it happen. It also says that there's knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this has to do with his spiritual gifts. He is gonna be rightly related to men and women and he is gonna be rightly related to God and to other things. This reminds us of Proverbs 1-7 where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so 
often Scripture says that Jesus didn't trust those, didn't entrust himself to men because he knew what was in the heart of men. And so he knew men and women, and he knew God, and he ordered his life in relationship to that. So you could say that he is a complete package. The ultimate success of his rule is absolutely assured. Now, as I was thinking about this, I think of maybe one possible objection that you may be thinking. You may say, like, I understand that Jesus... Um, he, he was rightly related to God and to people, and that he had great wisdom and understanding. But this whole thing about him um, planning his campaign and fulfilling his campaign, having counsel and might. So didn't Jesus go to Jerusalem, and didn't he get crucified by the ruling power of the day? In other words, did not Jesus fail? Well, that's a perceptive point, and it's one that troubled his disciples. I think it's very helpful for us to note that Jesus himself understood part of his mission as dying. And we see this in Mark 8. It's very explicit. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And then he even teaches them who is going to be doing that suffering. And then I love the last phrase there. And he said this plainly. Now, his disciples had a really, really hard time picking up on this. In fact, they just repeatedly did not understand what he was saying. But, and you know, and we may be a little bit confused too. Like if Jesus is supposed to, to establish this kingdom, then, then, then what has happened here? Well, you have to kind of understand how Scripture unfolds. And this is something that the, the prophets actually didn't really have a picture of this. They weren't wrong. But Jesus' kingdom, as the Scripture unfolds, it begins to show that his kingdom is split into two segments. The first is the inauguration, and that is his earthly ministry when he comes down to earth. Now, the focus of the inauguration was for him to come and defeat spiritual powers and to handle the sin that is in every human heart. And this is a great mercy because we're going to talk about this later. Like, this is a huge, huge problem. And so he came not to judge, not to condemn, but to handle, but to take care of the sin. Now, at the end of his time, and we're not going to look at this passage, but you can find it in Acts chapter 1, we're going to see that Jesus, as he was taken up into heaven, the Scripture says, he said that his, his followers were going to have the same spirit that rests upon him and that they were to go and spread the news of that forgiveness to all nations. Now, the second part of his kingdom is going to be when he returns and he consummates this kingdom. And so when you read one of these passages about the Messiah, you will see aspects of both. And so we're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4, and you'll see a lot of judgment there. And that is going to be Mark, a lot of his second coming. So until you understand this fact, and also Jesus just understood his mission um, in this way. He says in Mark chapter 8, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Excuse me, that's Mark chapter 10. And so as you see, like he knew that giving his life to ransom us was part of his mission. And so you see, he did accomplish the mission of the inaugurated kingdom. So we're going to turn our attention to verses 3 and 4, and we're going to see some more aspects of his kingdom. Basically, his activity. Like, what did he do? So we've seen his identity. What's he look like? We've seen his capacity, what, you know, how he is empowered and gifted, and now we're going to look at like, what, what exactly is he going to do? His activity can be described mainly as righteous judgment. His rule is going to be marked by dispensing justice. 
Now, it's hard to read these verses without noticing uh, the judgment words. And so, as you look at this, you'll see it leads off by saying his delight is in the fear of the Lord. That's the second time it's said that because his entire life is, is ordered by the fear of God. He is pious. But then it says he is going to judge. He is going to judge, decide disputes, decide, strike the earth, kill the wicked. So, you have all of these judgment words. Now, he's going to tell us a little bit about things that he will not do and things that he will do. So he is not going to judge by what he sees and by what he hears. I like the way a translation called the New Living Translation says this. He says, he will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. All earthly judges, all earthly leaders, every parent, every person, we all have these limitations that come with judgment. We have a different things such as uh, conflicting testimonies. You ever try to get two kids to agree? You know, you get it, get it from both sides, right? You have hearsay. You have circumstantial evidence. And sometimes you have outright deception. But this judge does not have to base his judgment off of what he sees and hears because he has another standard. Now, the insight that he has is going to be, it's going to help a group of people, the humble and the poor. It's going to help them, and it's going to judge the wicked and those who reject him. Jesus' earthly ministry gave us just a little bit of how this judging not by appearances works. And so we see this by how he treated the marginalized of his day. So here in our passage, it says the poor and the meek. Now, poor are those who have no resources. And uh, if they have no resources, that may be physical, but Jesus later says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So it could also be people who have no resources spiritually, and they recognize that. Also, the meek are those that are exploited or those who allow themselves to be exploited. And Jesus, in his teaching, would say, the poor, invite them to your feast. The poor are happy. The poor are blessed. And so he, he emphasizes all the time in his teaching. Why? Because he didn't judge by externals in a time where people would look and say, no, they, I don't want them at, at my feast. He also did this with the marginalized of his, of his society. You think about the people that Jesus looked and said, I want that person to follow me. I think that person is worth saving. And so he did it for fishermen who became his disciples. He did it for tax collectors. He did it for the woman who was caught in sin. He did it to the Samaritan woman. He said, you, you people, you come and follow me. All this is a little bit scandalous, and it did not make sense to the rulers of his day, but it can only be explained by his ability to see past externals and to judge not based on what he sees and hears. It says that the people that he champions, they're going to be judged or decided on with righteousness and equity. Righteousness is simply straightness or conformity to a standard. Now, sometimes this, this word gets, you know, used as a punchline, like for dude crush, right? Righteous, or, or, or else it's, we just automatically take it and say righteous, self-righteous. So we think that righteousness is a bad, stuffy thing. It just means straightness. Somebody who is self-righteous, they have taken themselves as their standard, and so everything else they see is warped, and they pass judgment accordingly. It says that he is going to judge with righteousness. What that means is that he is going to judge with a perfectly straight ruler. 
perfectly straight righteousness, perfectly straight judgment. And so, his standard of righteous judgment is going to land differently on two groups of people, and we see this in verses 3 and 4. He is going to judge the poor, and he is going to decide with fairness for the meek of the earth. So, the poor, those who are without resources, either spiritually or physically, the meek, those who are exploited or allow themselves to be exploited. And then it says he will strike the earth, and that's just a general term for every, everybody, and then he's going to kill the wicked. So, this is good for the poor and meek because finally they receive justice where they have been oppressed all of their lives. However, it's bad news for the wicked. Now, we really shrink back from words like strike and kill and wicked. I mean, these are, these are so binary, aren't they? They're very, they're very, very hard words. But the fact that he is going to judge in this way is a great mercy. First of all, because you know that the judgment is going to be righteous. It's going to be perfectly right. It's going to be from a standards, not hearsay. It's going to be something that is internal and is perfectly right. But second of all, if we ask ourselves honestly, the answer to a lot of the questions that we face, the answers to the problem of evil in the world, is that this is not the end. At some point, it is going to have to be handled. So we live in a, in a day where justice is not always done. And we, we hear rhetoric, and we hear, um, we hear saber rattling from countries, and we see red lines that aren't red lines. Well, here is one who does not kick the can down the road. He is going to handle it. And so we think about all the things that we're saying, like, this is not right. There are things that cannot exist in this kingdom if it is going to be a kingdom of perfect harmony and peace. We have things like bad actors. We have organized crime. We have terrorism, systemic evil, racism, hate, treachery, abuse, trafficking, are we going to say that this is a just Messiah if he just says, you know, allow those things to continue? No, he is going to deal with them. And he says that he's going to do it with the word of his mouth. So the breath of his lips simply means that a word is enough to judge the wicked. You're like, what are we talking about here? In Revelation chapter 19, where it sum, summarizes the end of human history and going into eternity, it speaks of a time where one who is faithful and true is going to come, and it says, from his mouth comes a sword with which he will strike the nations. Now, there's tons of symbolic stuff in Revelation, but the reality of this is that the world is going to be so polarized, either those who welcome the return of this king or those who resist the turn of this king, and with a word, he is going to put down the resistance. This is often called the day of the Lord, or if you read Isaiah, you'll see in that day. And what this is speaking to is a time where God actually breaks into human history and advances things in a very, very decisive way, bringing judgment and blessing. And this is the witness of Scripture. Now, I don't tend to think of myself as wicked. Do you? I mean, you know, this is such a to total word, right? Either you're totally wicked or, or not. Um, the fact that Jesus split his ministry, remember we talked about that inauguration where he was going to deal with the spiritual aspects, the spiritual powers, and handle sin, and then the consummation when he comes and he judges those that have not accepted the way that he handled that. 
Uh, this is actually a great mercy because wickedness is a condition of the heart. It has been said that, that wickedness like runs straight through the human heart and it had to be dealt with. Verse 10 kind of gives us a, a picture of those that will be considered wicked or those that will be considered poor and meek. It says that he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble, um, excuse me, in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. So basically all those who come and look upon him and say, yes, I will be taught by you. Those are the poor and meek. Those that say, I will not come to the signal, I will resist it. Those are the wicked. So Jesus' entire work in his earthly ministry was a summons to himself as a rescue from the wickedness that splits all of our hearts. And so, yes, he is going to judge decisively those that resist, but there's so much mercy in his ministry. The title of our series is, What Do We Need Now? I would say that what we need today is a fresh vision of this Messiah. Somebody mentioned to me beforehand, I thought this was beautiful, it's kind of like manna, where the Israelites had to eat it every single day. Why do we come here? Why do we open this book? We do it because we need manna. We need fresh food. We need a fresh vision of this Messiah. Now, you may be here, and you may be still in kind of the undecided category. You're still exploring. You're still saying, you know, I, I, I like Jesus. I'm just not sure I, I'm buying everything about this. Let me just point out to you, number one, just evaluate the fact that this happened 700 years before Jesus came, how his lineage and the surroundings of his birth and, and where he came from, it all lines up. Evaluate the prophecy and see how specific it is. And then look at the way that Jesus treated those that were marginalized in his day. He is a, a beautiful person. He is one who is gentle, and he is worthy of being followed. And I would ask you to do that. And I would also ask you just to think that we are in this time of grace where Jesus has taken care of the wickedness that is in our hearts, yet we have to come to him, and that it would be wise for you not to delay that indefinitely. And then there's those of us who would say that Jesus is our king. He is our Messiah. And I ask, how is this bread for us today? I had a very specific time as I was preparing this sermon where I thought back to the last time where I felt powerless, like powerless to do the right thing. Have you ever had a point where your spirit is broken, where you have no restraining bolt, and like whatever's coming out of your mouth or your actions at that time is probably not going to be pleasing to God? The last time I had this, it was on a family vacation. Uh, the sleep was down. The steps were up. Uh, my oldest son, who has some special needs, was, was having a, um, an episode, and, uh, and, and he startled, and I am not exaggerating, thousands of people. And as I was like dealing with this and my other kids, um, the restraining bolt just came off. Like my, my spirit was broken down, and out of my mouth came bitter words that my other children heard. And I knew it was wrong, but at the moment, I did not care. Now, I ask myself, how does a message like this, how is this bread for me in a situation like that? And here's how I think this may work. In those moments, 
there's very, very little you can do. Like, I'm not gonna pull out an outline and say, you know, he has the capacity and the identity. You know, you're, you're not gonna do that, are you? But what this does is it builds our foundation of faith, where we look and we say, help God. And what you're saying in that help is, I have a Messiah. He is human. He knows that I am frail right now. He is humble. His circumstances were not always beautiful either. He has counsel. He has a plan. He has might. Even if he does not fix things right now, he will do so in the future. And I can count on that. And my faith is strengthened. And when you say, help God, help me right now, we are bringing all of those things to bear. So I'm praying that this will be bread for you. Let it renew your vision of the kind of Messiah that we have. There is a old spiritual song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and, and it says this, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May we catch that vision of our Messiah today. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are gracious to give us such a, a specific and beautiful picture of the one that so many of us worship. Lord, thank you for giving us details of his birth so that we can say, yes, that is the one. Thank you for assuring us that you are bringing all things under him Lord, that you are going to wrap up human history in a way that is, is beautiful. Lord, we don't live in that time now. So, Lord, I pray that we would trust. Lord, give us a simple faith that when we cry out, help, that we will have this picture of you in our mind. Lord, if there's any here today that uh, they have not yet accepted this king, Lord, I pray that this would be the day that they do that in a simple way, just by acknowledging it. Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.